Well, we have these Lenten readings this morning, and we also have the joyous occasion of Alan's ordination, so I'm going to do like some really fancy liturgical twisting and turning up here, something like you've never seen to blend together Lent and an ordination. And we're going to focus this morning on the Old Testament reading from Exodus 20, and to consider together how Yahweh's, we might say, principles or values for what it means to be life in covenant with him can also be to us fundamentals for both our own formation and for the ministry of the priesthood that we celebrate this morning. So core to the Old Testament is the idea that human life is meant to be lived with reference to God and meant to be lived with a kind of confidence, therefore, then that there is a way that things are, that humanity doesn't have to invent everything, and that um, while it's sometimes true, it's just not always true that everything in life is a construct. There is a way that things actually are outside of our thinking about them and external to our thinking about them, and this is a good thing that's meant to give us confidence. And so in this passage in Exodus 20, we see that sometimes these things are things like God's plans or his ideas or norms. If you look at your passage, in the NIV it translates, I think, well, uh, the Hebrew notion for these are God's words. And the notion here is that human life flourishes best when we honor and choose God's ways as they're expressed in these words. So again, looking at that first sentence, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So the first thing to notice here is that these are words. They're not commandments. Now, one could say, well, they kind of rise to the level of commandments, don't they? And I suppose you could say yes. But what you're invited to see here is, is not a kind of finger-wagging, you know, moment, I mean, I don't know if young moms still do this, but when I was a young boy, a young bad boy, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, it was not at all uncommon. I mean, all the moms on the block did it, you know, would wave their fingers at us and say, just wait till your father gets home, right? That, that was like, that was the height, right? Like you knew you're in trouble when you heard that sentence, wait till your father got home. You know, that meant I had just thrown a baseball through a window or picked oranges off the tree and threw it at the neighbor's kids or something, you know, just wait till your father gets home. And we mustn't hear these words, I think, in that way. These are personal words. And the spirit underlining them is one of loving relationship. It's not like codes and a law book. It's more like the establishing of values or an ethos, sort of a general bearing or heading. And that there's a point and purpose for each of these words. And that all of them taken as a whole or each one individually are something like this. They're practices for the community of covenant. They were actually never meant to be inflicted on unbelievers. There's actually no coercive intent here. There's invitation. For those of you who want to be in the community of covenant, here are the practices that from God's point of view are guidance of how he and his people can be together and how his people can be together with each other. It's sort of training for how to be with God, how to be with each other, and how to be with those outside the covenant. So probably you can call to mind the well-known Psalm, Psalm 119, that's a celebration to God's words. And there you have that well-known phrase, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Now you just picture yourself in sort of disorienting darkness. 
you know, maybe you're sitting in a movie theater and not only do all the normal lights go out, but the, the, all the security lights and the backup systems all fail and you're in absolute darkness and just don't know where to go. You know, even just a little pin light would reorient everything. And that's the notion here. Thy word is our orientation to what it means to be human in the image of God. Well, secondly, if you see in that first sentence that these words are rooted in a story, in a shared experience of a certain and really dramatic kind, and that is deliverance from slavery. And so God's passionate, loving, saving action in the Exodus and caring for them in the wilderness is that which has drawn these people together. And now they're being set on a new trajectory in life. And it's to be one of nearness to God and blessing. And so these newly set free people who have a special vocation They're to respond by shaping their lives around these words. The idea is that these words will protect you. They'll be that which accompanies you in this new life and that they will open before you new paths, sort of unheard paths of human flourishing. And so what's called for then is not religious legalism or cold moralism, but trust, right? If you see it, if you hear it in that narrative term, I'm the God who delivered you, And now we're going to be together as a people, and you have this special vocation in and to the world to be with me, a blessing to the whole world. And this is kind of how we're going to do this together. So you might think of a coach drawing up a play and a basketball game, and the five girls or five guys stand there and look at that play, and they decide somewhere deep in their heart whether or not they have confidence in it. If you go out on the court having confidence in what was just drawn up, on the little, you know, whiteboard, uh, that'll elicit one sort of behavior. But if you go out on the floor having no confidence or no understanding in what was written down, that's something different. So the invitation here is to trust in the co- and to have confidence in the completely competent wisdom and love of God. So, so that's the, sort of the nature of what we now call the Ten Commandments. Obviously, we can't cover all of them this morning, but I thought to honor Alan's work in Unhurried Living and his work in Unhurried Leadership and the ministry that he and Jim are now doing together, uh, I thought we could take as a representative one of these words as Sabbath. And so we'll work a little bit this morning with Sabbath. So if you look at your text, there's the one big paragraph. You know, the others are just lines. Sabbath apparently has always needed some explanation. So somebody who's always been useful to me, and I, don't, I lose track of time, but it feels like about three years ago, and it feels like maybe it was during Advent, that we read together Brueggemann's book, Sabbath as Resistance, is that what it's called? We read that together as sort of the penitential part of Advent together. And in that book, Brueggemann says that Sabbath acknowledges that what is needed is given and need not be seized. Now, we could literally just stop right there and have another 15 minutes of silence. You could actually go on a three-day retreat just with that thought, that what is needed is given, and it need not be seized. Now, again, you just think of what that would do to human relationships. Think about what that would do to the global economy. Think of the implications for any aspect of human endeavor, if people just had the peaceable confidence that what is needed is given, it doesn't have to be seized. But Brueggemann says that the commandment to rest, to pause, and engage in Sabbath 
is probably the most urgent and the most difficult. And that's the other reason I picked it, as much as I love and respect what Jim and Alan are doing. This is just always an issue. And it's one of those moments where I always want to say, you know, I don't blame you guys if you just yelled out, you know, physician, heal thyself. I mean, I live a very rich and full life. I run three organizations, speak all over the place and teach all over the place and try to find the time to write books. I mean, there's just, I don't think there's anybody in this room who has a richer or fuller life than me. And I both have to and find it difficult to be really consistent about Sabbath. I try to have Monday as a Sabbath for me, try to find little Sabbaths throughout the day. I try to find monthly days away. I try to find, you know, I try to find a rhythm of this, but I don't know, you guys, you know, whatever's real for you is real for you. I'm just saying what's real for me is that Brueggemann's right. This is both the most important and arguably the most difficult in modern society. But I just want to help us see what I always try to help myself see, that it's the tyranny of greed in the modern marketplace. And in my religious world, it's a little, the tyranny's a little different, but trust me, there's a tyranny there. But it's the tyranny of greed in the human marketplace that makes us feel used and trapped because the demands of the market are endless. You know, in business, it's, it's more and a greater return on investment and speed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's all these pressures. Have you ever known anybody training to be a doctor? Good luck finding any sort of Sabbath when you're training to be a physician. And no one cares. Tough luck. This is the way it is. Law has its own demands. Nonprofits are often under the tyranny of pleasing donors. And if we can't give a good report, if we can't show more than we showed last year, whatever it is, they feel huge pressure. If you're the executive director of even a religious nonprofit, you've got a board who wants more usually, you got donors who want more, it's just more, 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 more. Education, even in the church. But what's crucial to see here is that Sabbath was always meant to be a freedom. I mean, think of who heard these words. These were exploited slaves who Pharaoh never gave a moment off except for to sleep or eat. And so when they heard Sabbath, they didn't hear a, doggone it, you know, this is so hard. And, you know, I think if I'm honest, I actually like being busy more than I like Sabbathing. Right? That's our reaction. You know, who are used to having all freedom and don't like any sort of controls on our life. You know, but their reaction was, this is, was an amazing gift. Like one day a week, we can do nothing. And so the text says in the second sentence there, remember the Sabbath. So remember means to hold as a high priority. This is what's underneath the sort of Hebrew construct here. It's not just called a remembrance, but it's to hold something in high priority and most precisely to observe without lapse. So remember to do what? Remember to cease, to stop, to do no work, to rest, to rejuvenate. I forget which book it was in, but Dallas Willard wrote, Sabbath is a way of life in which we make every effort to enter into the rest of God. It is simply casting all your anxiety on him to find that in actual fact, he cares for you. Again, that, that's the invitation. To learn that when we're doing nothing, it doesn't mean God is doing nothing or that the community around us is doing nothing. 
or that the people we love are doing nothing. It's a way of practicing the knowledge that God indeed cares for us. So I find for myself that Sabbath is, for me, actually the only way to mindfulness and to maintaining any sort of distinct faith that's not co-opted by the culture. You know, the culture around us that only values creators and consumers of goods and services for the gods called the economy. That, that may be actually our most consistent common God in America and in most of the Western world. It's the God of the economy because you, you can trust that if you do the right things. If you have the right trade policies and if you do the right things to stimulate the stock market, if you, know, if you, if you do the right things, then well, you can come to trust the economy. And that seems to be sort of in human hands. And so th- there's something a bit easier for us about that or to come to trust the workforce. But there's a sense in which rest and purposefully chosen inactivity are meant to be an alternative. And this is Brueggemann's big contribution to this topic. That it's kind of a conscientious objection to those gods. It's a saying to the god of the economy, the god of the workplace, the god of the stock market, whatever. It's sort of a conscientious objection that says, no, I refuse to give in to the restlessness and anxiety As a slave to Pharaoh, I'm not just going to switch from Pharaoh to the economy. And I'm not going to give in to the gods that demand endless work and endless production. I'm not going to give in to a life based on commodity, just making bricks, making them faster, making them without straw, and then making them even faster. I'm not just going to give myself over to that kind of of life. But rather, in these words from God, we have an invitation for a restful confidence in God. This is a relational notion. I remember the first time the thought crossed my mind, God is not a workaholic. Like, I don't know, I mean, I barely can handle my rich and full life. How in the world does God handle it? I always think, what was that? I forget what the movie was, but I remember the scene. It was Jim Carrey, and he's playing God, and he's sitting at that switchboard, and he's trying to hear and answer prayers, right? And he's okay at first. Oh, yes, you know, plugs it in. Oh, yes, he plugs it in. Remember, then all these prayers start coming in, and all of a sudden, you're like, he just can't handle it anymore, right? He just can't plug in the switchboard. You remember that scene in that movie? And so we think, well, that must be what it's like to be God. I mean, how can he even just hear the prayers of a couple of billion Christians, How does he handle what's going on simultaneously in Washington and in Korea and Syria, Jerusalem, Texas, Florida? How does he do this? And we sometimes engage in in this sort of attributing human qualities to God and thinking, well, he surely has to live as a workaholic. Or I remember thinking for the first time that God might not be worried about the full functioning of creation, that maybe he actually sleeps pretty well at night. That's another attributing of humanness to God. What if he really is confident that that what he called good is good and that it will come to its intended conclusion? And what if it's true that built into the core of creation is the notion that creation does not depend on the endless work of humans, that creation actually intends on this person who created it? So Brueggemann says that for Israel, these 10 words were not just religious laws the way we think of them, They were a regime change. It meant that the paranoid, heavy-handed, exploitive pharaoh that made you work without ceasing, that was over. And it's drawing a picture that Yahweh, the one true creator Lord, is not like that. The idea here is to see that you're not little replicas of the anxiety-driven pharaoh, that you're created rather in the image of God. 
and you're invited to leave anxious productivity behind and to find a new life that's marked by a neighborly freedom, right? So you've got the first four of these commands or words that, that give a vision for practices for being with God. Then you've got the last six that give us a vision for practices with being with each other. And that this is meant to be an invitation to us where we can leave behind the anxieties of Pharaoh and his claim to be God and his claim to be ruling humanity rightly. We can leave that behind and we're invited into something that is not marked by anxious productivity, but marked by this new space in which neighborly freedom is possible. But again, I'll just speak for myself. If I'm honest of, of, about myself over the last 40 some years, what often goes through my mind is, but I can't take a break. And that feels very real, it feels very honest. But I can't. I mean, there is literally so much to do. And not just to do like the amount of work that needs to be done right now, but the way my, my mind works, I can have five ideas in three minutes that could expand that work. And then, well, now what? Well, now you need more money. And now you need more human resources. And now you need more leadership, right? And so what can happen to us is we can literally feel that I can't take a break. And what I've noticed, again, just speaking for myself, what I've noticed as I've worked on that is that what's underneath that is almost always the notion that I somehow have to secure my future. Because if I don't do this, so-and-so is gonna think that. And if so-and-so thinks that, he might say that to a donor. And if that donor hears that, then that's gonna you know, put that relationship in jeopardy. Whatever, right? You just, your brain just goes down these tracks. And so that if I don't get up and do thus and so, then something is insecure. And again, that just, again, you just dial that down a little bit more and you find kind of a, often an insecurity about God. I will never forget as long as I live, the moment Dallas Willard said to me, Todd, who watches over your life when you're asleep? Who's in charge then? Who protects you? And you go anywhere with that. Who makes sure there's enough oxygen for your lungs to work? Who makes sure the gravity's okay? You, just, you can go anywhere you want with that thought. And the idea is, can you learn to place your confidence in God in that way that you don't have to always be in charge and that even when you're not in charge, it's okay. Because when you think you have to secure your own future, the demands of that, trust me, are endless. They always require just a little bit more. And then just when we think we're making progress, another moment pops up where we need to grab control. Or another advertisement pops up on our phone or our computer screen, stimulating that thing in us. And so the constant desire for more creates a restless spirit in us that just will not permit Sabbath. So again, I, I would just encourage you this morning to just absolutely stop thinking about these things as religious commandments. Put them in their, their storied context, put them in their relational context, and put them in a personal context that asks the honest question, how is it that I have this restless spirit, and how is it that it actually will not permit Sabbath? It really won't permit disconnecting or space-making. So just a little vision as we conclude here that might help us. What if it's something like this, that Sabbath invites us into an alternative story? 
that goes something like this. You have six days of good, beautiful, amazing creation, right? Just think, just feel this with me. Everything in its right place. Everything functioning the way it's supposed to function. And then here's the new idea. Then comes the climax. Not God was like, whoa, man, that was hard. I think I need a break. You know, or picture somebody who just ran a marathon or something, and they sort of stumble over the line. And I think sometimes that's the way we picture God. And then that informs us a constantly just sort of stumbling over the line, whether it's every day when we go to bed or every week when a week's over or getting through hump day on Wednesday, you know, whatever your deal is. But what if that's the wrong picture? What if the picture is something that this is, this is climax, this is, this is the end goal, this is the good of creation, and the good of creation is Sabbathness of being with God. And that our work, whether it's vocation, as we celebrate with Alan this morning, or that which we get a paycheck for. Alan doesn't get a paycheck for being a priest. It's his vocation. So whatever your vocation might be, whatever you might get a paycheck for, what if all that is meant to happen in the climax of creation, of just being with God? The Jewish rabbi Abraham Heschel wrote this, Sabbath is not for the sake of weekdays. Could you catch that? Sabbath is not for the sake of weekdays. Weekdays are for the sake of Sabbath. So the Sabbath is not merely an interlude, but the climax of living. And if we're somewhere near the truth here, then you can hear Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am not patterning my life under anxious-driven, production-driven Pharaoh. I am gentle and lowly of heart. I represent the Sabbath purpose of creation. And in me, you can find rest. Now, before I read Alan's books, I had only read Peterson. And so when I found my life, my life out of control, I would sometimes think, this is so dumb. I would sometimes think not, oh God, I hope God doesn't see how out of control my life is. I would think, just nobody tell Eugene. He would just be so unhappy if like he could see how I was living my life right this moment. And now that I've read An Unhurried Life, I sometimes think, oh God, I hope Alan does not see me right now. You know, Peterson has written and thought a lot on Sabbath and Again, I can't remember where he wrote this, but he said, if you don't take a Sabbath, you're doing too much. You're being too much in charge. You've got to quit one day a week and just watch what God is doing when you're not doing anything. So the vision, I think, for us this morning is that Sabbath is when new creation breaks out. It's, Sabbath is sort of eschatological. You know, it's, it's about the end. It's about fulfillment and completion and fulfillment. Sabbath is something like the vision of the end of the story. It's meant to be a rest that facilitates partnership, right? Going back to the first verse of Exodus 20. It's a rest that facilitates this partnership with God in the cosmic unfolding of the kingdom. So Revelation 22.5 says, this is you know, one of the last sentences in the Bible, it says, and they will rule, with, rule and reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, got that? What if that reality is marked by a Sabbath kind of partnership in which we rule and reign with God in this ever-expanding cosmos in a way that's not anxiety-driven, but is driven by the fulfillment of creation, which is rest. It's not driven 
by sin and fall. You do remember that Adam and Eve were offered to work with God, to rule and reign with him before there was sin. And that work would have been marked by the being of God, a more Sabbath, not a Pharaoh-like, but a a Sabbath-like work with him. So as we come now to a quiet moment, another quiet Lenten moment, maybe we could just wonder together, what practices of Sabbath, of clearing space and time, of decluttering your heart or mind, might you want to engage with for this last half of Lent? Is there an invitation for you here this morning by the Spirit to include in your Lenten practices a clearing of space and time, of decluttering your heart and mind, finding a Sabbath kind of partnership with God?